Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 54 of Greater Than Code. I'm Jamie Hampton, and I'm here today very excited to introduce a guest panelist, Jacob Stobel, from our Slack community. This is one of the benefits of being part of our Slack community. You might get asked to be a guest panelist. So thank you for being on, Jacob. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm joined by Rain Henricks. Hi, thank you, Jacob. I am super excited because I get to introduce Nadia Arunayo. Yeah, not bad. Not bad. Not bad working on that name. It's a really <laughs> interesting name. Nadia runs Ignition Works, a double act who are currently focused on helping enterprise teams run and maintain cloud platforms. Previously, she was a software engineer at Pivotal, and she originally learned to code at Makers Academy. She loves to speak at conferences and help organize them. In her spare time, she runs the Ruby Book Club podcast and does as many commercial dance classes as she can. So that's a pretty full ticket. You're doing a lot yeah, of stuff. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> All fun stuff. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast with us, Nadia. Thank you for having me. A lot of times we like to start out by asking our guests, what is your superpower and how did you acquire it? I guess my superpower is my smile because I'm always smiling. People always comment on it. And it means that on the rare occasions where I'm not smiling, people are always quick to uh, ask what's wrong. I think my smile is special because it always calms the situation and makes people feel warm. And I guess I just acquired it naturally. I've always been smiling. I think I've been smiling since I was born. So wonderful. I love that you didn't even have to practice it. It just happened. <laughs> you see, I can't stop now. <laughs> I wish we were a video podcast so everyone could see. So, Natty, I'm really excited to have you on the show today because I know we're going to be talking about uh, the idea of code hospitality, which I'm really interested in. Um, but it was a concept that I wasn't familiar with before. Can you kind of give us to start the cliff notes on it and then we can get into it more after? Sure. The reason why you're probably not familiar with it is because I created it last year myself. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, you wouldn't have heard about it anywhere unless you were watching uh, the talk for it. So Code Hospitality was born when I was working with my business partner on a project, a Rails project, and I was really struggling with whatever we happened to be working on at the time. And I just felt like I was hitting a brick wall and I was beating myself up a lot about it. And to put it in perspective, Theo, the guy that I work with, he has got like 10 years of experience in Rails. And at the time I had two to three years experience. So there was, a, there was a big experience gap. And he could see that I was beating myself up. And he said, well, it's like Rails is my city and I've lived here all of my life. And what he was trying to say, and it did work, it did calm me down, was that, hey, it makes sense that I'm getting this and you're not, because I've lived here. I, I'm so used to these streets and the way this works. You know, I, I know this like the back of my hand, whereas it's an unfamiliar place to you. So it's fine that you're struggling. And so when he said that, that got me thinking about this idea of seeing our code bases and the tools that we use as places where we live. And so if I thought about it, like Theo is this person who's lived in the city of Rails for a long time and I've just arrived. I hadn't just arrived, but just to put it in perspective, I've just arrived and I want to get to know this place too 
And so it was, well, when you're a new person visiting a city and perhaps you've got someone who's lived there for a long time, what's the best way for you to quickly start to find your way around, for you to learn about the quirks of the place, but also for you to feel at home? And, and so there were two roles that came to mind, the role of the host, so the person who's lived there for a long time, what can they do to make you feel welcome and to put you on your own two feet and then the role of the guest as in what can you be proactive in doing and what should you expect or not expect to happen if you're in an unfamiliar place and so that's just a quick high level overview of what the code hospitality concept is does that mean if if uh, a code base as a city does that mean there can be cities that are or code bases that are unfriendly or might seem unfriendly or that might seem in your face or, you know, that could have, cult, you know, cultures that are off-putting to a newcomer? It's funny because when I first wrote the proposal for the talk, it focused a lot more on the code itself and the code base itself and how that code was written and whether it was welcoming or not. But when I started writing the talk, I found that the ideas I wanted to talk about were more around the people working on the code base and how they interacted Partly also, I found that it was quite hard to stipulate what is welcoming and what is not welcoming because everyone has different views and ideas on what welcoming or good code is. And I didn't want to go there. And also because I think it is more important to focus on how the people are interacting around the code base. But sure, I think there are some practices that are unwelcoming. And in fact, one of the things that I talk about in the talk are readmes as a tool of like an orientation tool and how I think a lot of readmes today are well, I wouldn't say misguided, maybe they could be doing a better job of guiding a contributor to a code base beyond just the initial setup, for example. So there are practices and things that I talk about that touch on the code base. And so in that world, yeah, I do think that there are some things within a code base that could be done to make it more welcoming or less welcoming. But I do think that the important thing to focus on is the interactions between the people working on the code base. I, I love just the metaphor of the code base as a place because it lets you bring to bear all of your experience with traveling or with, you know, having guests in your home and your understanding of, of what makes that a pleasant experience or not. And it just lets you transport all of that knowledge and reuse it when you look at what makes this code base a pleasant experience to, to learn or, you know, what makes a, a person a good host to a new developer on the code base. And so, you know, when I think about what do I do when I want to be a good host, I feel like I can apply a lot of that, a lot of sort of the principles behind that directly just by actually not even having like fully experienced your talk, but just thinking it through in my brain. I think that's what makes it such a powerful analogy. Well, it's great that you should say that because that's pretty much how I start my talk. So I start my talk with this story about how I list my spare room on Airbnb or something like that. And this woman gets in touch and says that she's thinking of coming to live in London. And do I have any time to help her show her around? And so I tell this little story at the beginning of how I tidy up my flat, I go and pick her up at the airport, I plan things for her to do initially, but I also make sure there's space for her to do her own things. And then at the end, we have a meal and we it's it's almost like, a how did that? How was that for you? And what did you like? What didn't you like? And then I also tell a couple of anecdotes throughout the talk about how when she's trying to find a particular place that she went to before and I took her there, but I didn't give her any tools to help her remember how to get back there. And little anecdotes like that throughout the talk, which I then tie back to what does this mean when we're coding with somebody or trying to introduce somebody to a code base? So things like if you're pairing with someone and you're just going ahead and doing things how you normally do it. 
then they're not really going to learn and know how to do it themselves the next time. So that maps to the story of when the character in my story, Alex, is trying to find somewhere that I've already taken her. And so and then I also ask at the beginning of my talk, I ask people to put up their hands if, you know, if they've been a guest, if they've been a host, think of what makes a good guest, what makes a bad guest. And sometimes I do get or I ask people in the audience, you know, what did you do last time before you received a guest? So I start to prime people to think in terms of the things that you spoke about just now. And then that's gets them in the right mindset when we start talking about the coding. They, they start making those connections themselves. I, I love when you can find analogies that are, are so fitting, like, like this one is. They explain so much just on themselves. They're real. I think, so Daniel Dennett uses the term intuition pump to talk about mm-hmm. things that when you think about them, they help you build your intuition just by thinking through and understanding that thing. And so in this case, just thinking more about how I would apply being a good host to onboarding new engineers onto my team, things like that, something I'm working on right now is I, is really interesting for me. What's interesting is when I was giving the talk at different conferences, different people would come up to me afterwards and apply the analogy to a particular problem they had or a particular thing that had happened. So, for example, I had someone come up to me and say, oh, I'm trying to explain this concept to somebody. And before I was just trying to say it how I would do it, but I realized that's not very helpful now. So now I'm going to explain it this way. So I'm equipping them for them to be able to do it themselves. Or I did have one more moving encounter after one of my talks where I had this, this man come up to me and he looked quite sad and he said, you know, I we just recently hired a Judy developer and they recently left because it wasn't a good fit. But listening to your talk, I realized that I did a lot wrong as a manager and I wasn't a proper host. And really the problem was more on my side than on their side. And so on one hand, I was really glad that that person had come to that realization, but it was also quite sad to think that what if he hadn't come to my talk and and going forward, if there were more junior developers in that situation. So I guess the positive is that that person realized, but it was also quite moving that they, they looked genuinely sad and like as if they'd had a realization of, oh, I'd been thinking about it incorrectly. Uh, that's really interesting. So I live in a, in a town that's very different from where I grew up right now. And it's a small rural town in, in the South in, in the United States. And I feel like I've more or less become a person who lives here, not the person who visits. And it's, it's, it's making me think like when I first moved here, um, I was very much a visitor and I had, I was sort of thinking very consciously about why people do things this or that way, why they drive certain ways, why, you know, why, 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 why. And I think for the most part, I've sort of stopped thinking about like why that is. And it's making me think like when my, you know, when my family visits or when friends from out of town come and visit, and, you know, me and my wife are sort of talking to them about, like, this is, these are some of the quirks of our town. It's like we find ourselves sort of reinvestigating why those particular eccentricities that we normally sort of don't think about on a day-to-day basis. And I, I, I just feel like having guests to your code base can have sort of the same positive effect. Yeah, so you touched on an idea that I originally had when I was mapping out this talk but that didn't make it into the talk and that's the whole piece around you said why people drive in a certain way or take a certain route or things like that so 
when I was first thinking about the idea of code hospitality, one of the key things was people get into habits. They get into their habits and they do things in a certain way. And sometimes it's because they just don't even think about it. They've just gotten used to doing it. They just get up at this time. They take the train just because. Or sometimes people do certain things because they're optimizing for something that's important to them. So it could be cost. It could be fresh air. It could be whatever. And so there were two sides to that. One was as a host, you need to start when you're getting ready to introduce to welcome another person, you can take time yourself to think about, now, why do I do things like this? Because, for example, one of the ideas I had was the person coming to stay with you messages you and says, hey, how do I get from the airport to your place? Now, your instinct might be to just say the way that you always get from the airport to your place. You might just get a taxi, for example. But the real question is, what does the guest, what are their parameters? What do they need? Is it that they want to get there as quickly as possible? Do they have a budget? And so thinking about code bases, it was, you know, when it comes to writing a test in a certain way or delivering a feature, you, you take certain steps. And particularly when you're an experienced developer, you stop questioning it. But when you're working with a less experienced developer and you have to start explaining things, now it can come down to, oh, I don't really know why I do it like that. Or... I do it like this because I had this pain before and this is a way to avoid it. But if you do uncover the reason why you do something, one, the other person you're working with could either, particularly if you have a particular reason, they might be able to show you a way that's better. So you might say, oh, I do this because it's cheaper or because it's a a safe way to maintain quality. And the other person might say, oh, have you thought about this? So it still fits in with your parameters, but it's a new way. Or alternatively, if you there's no real reason and it's just habit, then once you recognize that, you're probably more open-minded to try things differently anyway because you realize, oh, it's just because I've done it that way for 10 years and no one's really told me otherwise. Of course, I'll try something else. So I think it is really valuable starting to question, is it because, do I do this out of habit or do I do this because there's a real pain or there's a real need and, I'm, and I want to protect for that? And being aware of either way can help you explain it to others, explain it to yourself, particularly be open to finding new opportunities when you work with different people. One thing I want to mention, though, is I just used the comparison between a more experienced developer and a less experienced developer. And like this, something I say at the beginning of my talk is, although the examples I'm using because I'm talking about myself and Theo, or they map to a senior developer versus a more junior one, but I say that the difference between a guest and a host is not equal to junior versus senior, because it's more about expertise in a particular realm and that realm could be anything as broad as a whole code base or to the team you're working on down to something like a particular line of code so in some versions of the talk I give a particular example where I was working with an iOS developer who'd been doing iOS work for five years but they'd never done test-driven development so you know he had five years more experience than me in the iOS side or the Objective-C side but he'd never done TDD and I'd had two years of experience in that, for example. And so when we were pairing, he was the host when it came to writing the code and I was the guest, but in the same like sessions, I was the host when it was like, here's how we think about test-driven development and he was the guest. And so I try and pitch it that it's a, it's a malleable thing and it's just more of a frame of mind that you're always really a guest and a host at the same time, most of the time. I really, really like that because I think that it can be really easy to get very caught up in like junior versus senior. This is actually helpful for me even right right now because 
we recently, I work at a very small startup and we recently hired a new CTO. And so I was the only developer at our company that had expertise in the code base, but then we hired someone like much more senior to me to come in and be my superior. And I felt very uncomfortable like teaching him about code because I'm like, well, I mean, he has more experience in this and he's like a a senior level person and he knows all these things. But he was coming to me with all these questions because it was about things that I was familiar with. And I also really like what you said about reconsidering why you're doing things a certain way. Because when he would ask me, you know, oh, why is it like this here? I felt very uncomfortable being like, well, because it, I don't know, it just is. Because I, I felt like he was going to be like, well, but why? Like, but why? Like, explain your yeah. decisions to me. And some of this was from before I had even started at the company. And I'm like, I don't know, because someone did it that way. And I felt like he was going to come in and be like, well, you don't know anything about what you're doing at all. But it, I mean, it wasn't like that. It was more like, well, let's discuss this. And I think putting that frame around like, this is a good time to discuss these things is very helpful. So that's another thing I've mentioned in my talk, when you said this idea of you were concerned that this new person would come in and start saying, why have you done this? Why have you done that? So throughout the talk, I talk to either the host or the guest. And for the guest, I make this point of when you go into someone's house, you don't go around saying, oh, this is messy or, oh, why have you put this there? Why have you put that there? You're often quite polite. And I say it's almost the same thing in a code base, which is be patient and wait to hear why things are in a certain way. So if you see a lack of tests or maybe a messy bit of code, ask questions about it, but don't cast a judgment immediately. Like, why have you got no tests here? Or this is awful. You don't know what you're doing. Because in the same way that you wouldn't go into someone else's house and say that, it's a, it's a politeness thing. There's context and history that you don't know. And it could be that indeed it was an oversight or it was negligence and it is a bad way and you're going to help them see a see a a better way but just like how you wouldn't just start commenting on someone's things well I think most people wouldn't you you shouldn't do the same thing in a code base but I think people do feel that it's easier to just suddenly join a new code base and start grumbling about the code and say this is not to my standard and you see this is why it's particularly important that the whole guest host thing is not mapped to junior senior because you can be a much more senior developer going into a code base that you've never seen before so you're the guest but you think, oh, this is not up to standard or this is all wrong. But really, you need to take time with the team and, and hear the story. So, you know, you go into someone's house and you see stuff all over the floor. You know, wait to hear the story about why is there stuff all over the floor? Was there some works done and it, it wasn't there wasn't time to finish it and the person had to go and do something else. And but they're aware of it. You know, hear the story as well. So be patient as well. It would probably be harder to learn about the place when you're sort of your mindset is looking for things to go. I mean, like you, you use the analogy of host and guest and not host and I don't know, cop or host and invader, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like you're trying to learn more and then eventually you can live there. And eventually you can say like, now that I'm your roommate and not a, not a guest, um, the clothes on the floor are messing up my ability to live here. Yeah. Um, yeah. Exactly. I like the thing where you said, host or cop or like an inspector for example yeah you're not an inspector going into to say yep check 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 this is all mm-hmm. good it's you're trying to move in as well and so it's a compromise and it's a it's it, there's relationship building and it takes time right I think there might also be a call for empathy here because if I went into someone's house 
and it was a mess and they said there was some sort of natural disaster that caused our house to be a mess, I would be like, oh, that's, I'm so sorry. That's so horrible. How can I help you fix it? Whereas like if I went into a code base and I thought it was crap or whatever, you might be more likely to be like, well, why is this like this? And even if the reason is like, you know, there were problems and there were issues and we've had like a natural disaster in a way, like things out of her control, maybe it's a call for empathy to be like, oh, I'm sorry that your code base has gotten messy because of these things out of your control. Like, how can we fix it? This interview is a good sign that I think I had all the right ideas tied up because my main conclusion is that when we do code hospitality, it enables us to empathize. And I talk about how it's really difficult to work out what empathy means and what it is and how you practice it. And so if we have a a framework that we can use, that's very common to all of us. So it's very rare that we are never in a situation, even if it's very temporarily, like if we enter a new building or a meeting that we haven't been a guest or a host, then even when you're the guest, you understand what it means to be a host. And so you can put yourself in the other person's shoes and understand where they might be coming from. Like you said, this idea of a natural disaster. There are so many things happening around a code base that could lead to a poor code base. It could be people leaving all of a sudden, difficulties in team communication, all that sort of stuff. And so that's why you need to understand and empathize with those sorts of issues and you know, if you're a host and you think about, oh, yeah, what would it be like to be a, a CTO or a developer on this team when three people have left in the last two weeks or when they were suddenly bought by another company and there's there's a lot of flux or, you know, they have so many remote developers and they're all in different time zones. If you start to think about those things then you can say, oh, I understand how we got here. Cities have histories that sort of living in their on on their streets and buildings and and, you know i guess code bases can too i mean like when people are visiting wherever i happen to be living i love sort of sharing those sort of stories like that are sort of embedded inside like the physical place and say like well there was a fire here 10 years ago in this neighborhood and it's never been the same since and it's like well you can say the same thing as like just like you said what's the story behind the lack of tests is there a trauma behind that? Is there a story of people that are overworked or burned out? Or, you know, like there can be some like real human stories attached to certain parts of the code base. Definitely. And in one of the bits of the talk where I talk about orientation and I talk about the readme, I talk about that is a good place to explain the history or context or the narrative, if you can, or if there is something around the current state of the code base, how it got to be where it is anything that will help someone who's coming in just to set the scene in their head and I use it particularly I say even for like open source projects where everyone is remote essentially you you don't really it's not like you're going into an office but there could be a lot of history on an open source project so to understand hey this is how this project came to be this is why the state is coming like this this is the history of the maintainers the story behind it then that can help someone come in and understand even if it's a specific feature they're going to deliver, they can have the scene set in their head of, okay, this is what, this is all the the history, whether it's like a political one or just a social one, or maybe there's nothing, but that can help them start to feel at home in that repository, for example. 
Yeah, the more I think about it, the more it just strikes me as such a fitting analogy. You know, code is written by people. You know, code is a manifestation of the culture of the people that wrote it, the problems they, you know, they had, the constraints they had. And cities are the same thing. You know, cities are, are a manifestation of the cultures that built the buildings and the geography and the access to resource and all of these constraints, all these parameters that cause a city to be the way it is. But a city is also evolving and changing all the time you know old buildings get removed new buildings get built uh, and a code base is the same too and one of the things i love about the city analogy is it captures this idea of change as being you know normal and necessary yeah definitely the fact is just like a home every day that you you live in it and you walk around things are changing and it's the same in a code base it's constantly changing and that's why I think it's quite important that we, one, provide the tools to help people get set up, but also know where to go next. So that's why I talk about readmes often get you to, yay, now you have it running locally. But they don't really guide you in terms of this is what this home is about. This is the history here. But also that's why it's important when, as a host, to not only help your guests out initially, but also give them the tools or the setup that they can help themselves because you can't be holding their hand forever. And you can't. And while I'm a big proponent of pairing all the time or pairing whenever you can, even within a pairing situation, the other person needs to feel confident and know that they could do this by themselves if needs be. And so I talk about the I say the fish versus fishing. So an old colleague of mine, he said to me, and this is a quote, he said, you know, that phrase, give a person a fish, feed them for a day, teach them to fish, feed them for a year or a lifetime. Well, I think that phrase is bullshit because if the person is starving while you're teaching them to fish, they're going to die. And so I love this. And I thought, oh, I could put this in my talk because it is important to find that balance between giving someone some fish or maybe some vegetables if they're, they don't eat fish <laughs> and teaching them how to fend for themselves. Because if someone new comes into your company or joins your team you should assume, not that they're starving, hopefully they're not starving, but assume that they they need a bit of sustenance and support just to get them going. And then they can focus on starting to ramp up and be independent by themselves. And I think it is important you find that balance because like you said, Rain, it's things are always evolving. And so if you suddenly throw someone in in the deep end, it's likely that, you know, they might not be able to keep up. And also if you do that, they might not also know that it's okay to ask questions and say that, no, I'm not fine because they think, ah, I've just got to keep up. And before you know it, it might be too late. Like, I don't know that that story I told you earlier about the person who said the junior developer, you know, it didn't work out and they were they were gone very quickly. That could be the case of someone thrown into the deep end and they weren't given enough support. But then because things are always changing, you can't always rely on always having someone with you. So you also need to be at the same time equipping this person to be able to deal with that change and handle it by themselves. And so, yeah, that concept of being primed for continual change is very important. So maybe instead of teaching someone to fish, just fishing with them? <laughs> yeah, probably pair fishing. <laughs> and then if one day you don't turn up, the person realizes, oh, I know what to do because I've essentially been doing this by myself or with, with my pair for a while. I love that too because with fishing, I think a big benefit of pair fishing would just be that it's more enjoyable to fish with someone else than to do it by yourself. And maybe that could be the same with code as well. Yeah. Yes. An, an, another one, I think, is that it's actually really hard to tell someone how to fish versus yes. showing someone how to fish. 
yeah, I think it is more effective to show somebody than to tell them because even through the act of telling them, you might be communicating that adds another layer of communication, like or potential miscommunication. So, in fact, one of the I think it's a combination of showing and then also communicating what you're doing. So, one of the things in the talk that I mentioned is this idea of drawing diagrams whilst you're coding, because it's one thing to show somebody something. But when you're approaching a problem together, you probably have different mental models of the starting point. And so to get this point across, I talk about imagine that the next story in your backlog is as a user, I want to get into the Tower of London. And so the Tower of London, historic castle in in London on the River Thames. And I say you're looking at it and you see this and, and I show this aerial view of the Tower of London and then I say but the person you're working with is seeing this and I show this like view straight onto the door so on the ground looking at the doors and I say obviously in your both of your respective heads you're going to have a completely different solution to how you get into the Tower of London and I say that it's the same when coding so you might pick up a user story and again particularly if someone's lived there for a long time and you've just joined you probably have a different starting point in your head just from understanding oh I know that the code base behaves like this it has this quirk or we typically tend to approach this kind of feature like this and the other person might be bringing us probably bringing a perspective from different code bases or how they're used to doing things and so I say something that's useful is just always before diving into the code talk about it sketch out even if it's just boxes and lines or whatever sort of thing works for you and I talk about how when I was working with Theo on a particular problem we weren't getting anywhere but there was this perception of but this is easy and I was thinking no but this is hard and so Theo said well draw how you think these objects are interacting and I drew this jumbled up diagram which showed that I had this jumbled up concept of how the objects were behaving or interacting and that's why I found it difficult but we drew a more streamlined diagram together I can't remember what they're called it's the kind of diagram that Sandy Metz has a lot of them in her Puda book with the boxes and then shows how the message is being sent is there a particular name for those is it role activity no I can't remember anyway so I drew a different style of diagram with Theo that was a much more straightforward diagram. And as soon as we drew that diagram, it was immediate like, ah, I know what test we need to write now. And oh, okay, I know about the implementation. And it was just so powerful just drawing that diagram. And to think if we'd drawn it half an hour earlier, that would have been half an hour of, eh, don't know where I'm going, that we just wouldn't have had. And so one of the things I talk about in the talk is pair. But whilst pairing, have like scrap bits of paper around just so you can drop things down, check you're on the same page. And one of the other things I say is that it's important that even if you're the host, so you're the person who's more experienced, you don't assume that it's the other person that's lost and that they need to get to where you are. Instead, you're both at different places. How do you get to the same place to then start going? Because if you always assume that it's the other person that's lost and you're in the right place, then we go back to all of those things that we spoke about earlier around your habits and you just do things the way you do and not open to different ideas. There might be a better way to do things. It's also not a helpful learning setup if it's like teacher-student. It's very important that it's guest host as opposed to teach a student and I'm right and I'm going to tell you how or you're going to pass the test or you know find the right answer because that can also just not be a helpful or empowering learning setup. I'm reminded a little bit of and this was also mentioned in uh, Daniel Dennett's book on intuition pumps uh, Rappaport's rules for holding an argument in a kind way 
And uh, the first is that you should attempt to re-express your target's position so clearly, vividly, and fairly that your target says, thanks, I wish I thought of putting it that way. And what I've actually found a lot in working through problems or conflicts is that a lot of the time, if you can see the issue from the same perspective or if you can share the same perspective, a lot of the times the issue actually just goes away and the issue actually was a mismatched set of understandings or perspectives. Or sometimes it's just even of like, we agree and we we just choose to tell the story of how we see it differently. But when we get right down to it, it's, it's like we prefer to argue about how to get to a place in the city rather than just about where to go. And it's like sometimes we find, oh, it doesn't actually matter which way we take I feel like when an argument ends with, no, actually, we we agree. We've agreed the whole time. Like, it's good. Like, it can be frustrating because you're like, okay, well, we just wasted time arguing for no reason. But I usually feel like, no, it's good. We are on the same page. So I would say that the, the activity of getting on the same page is probably the most valuable thing you could have done in that time. So it was time well spent. Yeah, and it, it always feels really relieving afterwards. You're like, oh, okay, I feel good now. Even if you're like, why did it take so long if we were on the same page? But these things always happen. This gets back a little bit to when we were talking about when you have a guest come into a code base to be polite and to be understanding of the situation and how it arose and not just assume that don't mistake your lack of context for all of your ideas have to be right because you can't see why they could be wrong. Uh, And one sort of tactical thing that I try to do is I try to always say, what if, instead of hey, you should do this. I always just say, what if we change this to be like that? Because that gives them an opportunity to say, oh, it's like this because of this that you didn't know about. Right, and are you saying, when you say, what if, is that a place where you know the answer, but you're trying to use it as a learning tool, or you really don't know? it's, it's, uh, It's usually when I want to suggest a thing that I think would be an improvement, but I don't know if I'm right or not because I don't have all the context to know why that could actually not work. Yeah, I think that's a great tool that anyone could use, actually, because another thing I found, actually, when working with more experienced developers is that if you say, let's do, and not for want of trying to shut you down or whatever, the other developer might say, no, because, and they're not trying to just prevent you from doing things, but it's if they foresee ah, that's not going to work because I've had experience with this before and I know you're going to come into that pain. And so I think that's a disadvantage because often more, less experienced developers need the chance to fail and to understand why things have failed in order to help them to learn and make better decisions in the future. However, when you phrase it like, what if we did, it perhaps in some cases will force the other person to think about why. And if they haven't got a good reason then they're more likely I think to say actually let's try it to see why even if they say I have a hunch as that it won't work but they'll say well let's try it because I'm not sure and so I like that tool of what if rather than I want to do well let's do this because I think that that makes it easier to say oh no I don't think that will work but if you go what if and then why I, I think other developers particularly those open-minded to learning will want to see for themselves why not if indeed they can't come up with a good answer. But if yeah. they can, then that's also a better learning tool as well. Yeah, generally I get one of two things out of it. I either get more understanding of the thing and why my idea wouldn't work, or we try it and it either works or it doesn't work. But I will say that on the flip side, I think that the host has a responsibility to value and encourage the new perspectives that a guest has. Because a lot of times when you're 
living in a situation, you can't see it with fresh eyes. You can't adopt a beginner's mind. You can gain a lot by being open to suggestions from a guest, even if they're not phrased in the most polite way. And to try to work through sort of what can be superficial communication issues to get at the actual insight that they might have. Yeah, and that's why I think the analogy is really important on both sides, because it's not just, oh, I'm a guest and so it's fine, I'm unfamiliar, it makes sense that I don't understand this. It's also, oh, I'm a host, so I have to be a bit careful, a bit more reserved, just because I'm this person is vulnerable and uncertain. And so they may say things or do things which don't typically fit what I'm used to, but that's not because they're wrong. That's just because they know differently. So it's like thinking about it, you know, they come from a different culture or a different way of living or a different environment. And so it's not wrong. It's just different. I think that's very important. This idea of right versus wrong slash different. And maybe I could learn from different as well as teaching my way. And it's actually, at least for me, it's really difficult when I'm in the host role and the guest says, oh, that looks bad. You should do it this other way instead. Even if they're right, I find <laughs> yeah. myself less likely to agree with them. And it, it takes yeah. a lot of sort of self-assessment on my part and self-regulation to be able to say, you know what, despite how that came off, I should actually <laughs> think about whether there's something there or not. And yeah. maybe talk with them about how we could exchange this information in a nicer way in the future. Yes, definitely. And that gets on to another part of my talk, which is all about feedback. So the talk is split into three parts. The first part is about setting tone. So it's all around the, this is not teacher, student, senior, junior. You might want to do some cleaning, think about how you're going to show someone around, find that balance. And then there's a whole bit about pairing and delivering value. So that's the whole, you know, sketch the diagrams and work out where you're both at and then get on the same page. And then the, the third part is about feedback, because I say that things are inevitably going to go wrong or not 100%. So you need to be able to talk about that on both sides. But I also say that even if things have gone amazingly well, you should talk about it and say why, why things have gone well, because that can just help more of the same in the future. And so that's when I touch on the whole nonviolent communication style of talking. So how do you talk about feelings? How do you talk about what you need? How do you make requests of other people? And so, yeah, when you said that's a perfect example of you're the host and it's, you know, the burden is on you in the moment to not flip out or to not just discount the suggestion because you didn't like how it was said, but you also need to have the space to give that feedback because it's a lot on burden on you to just keep saying excusing things because you're like oh I'm the host they're the guests I should excuse them that's not going to end well because there'll be a lot of tension and one day you might flip or one day you might just ignore because you're fed up or you might yeah shut the person down and that could get even worse and so I talk about how it's very important even on a daily basis to just have a quick check-in how was today for you what should we change next time? And so that, you know, what should we change next time? You know, I felt frustrated when you said, and you know, insert specific words here so that it's very, it's not just casting a judgment or a generalization because I need, you know, support or, or confidence or trust or whatever it is that you need. And so next time, perhaps you could phrase it this way. And so that person go, oh, okay, I see why that came across this way, da, 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 da. And so I talk about a, a better framework for giving and receiving feedback in a nonviolent way that will help these one-on-one -on -one interactions, pairing sessions, guest host relationships get stronger each day.
So you said there were some things that you couldn't make fit in your talk. Was there anything else that you really wanted to to talk about in the talk, but that that didn't make it in? When I was thinking about it more on the code way, there was a time when this is very specific. So where do you all use Rails? Are you all familiar with Rails? Yeah. Yeah. So typically there's a, there's a standard way of writing an endpoint and we had to deliver a certain video format and I didn't know that you could just do so we need to video we needed to do a video format in m3ua and I didn't realize you could just do dot m3ua to change the, the endpoint and I'd written this note about how that was like if you go to a, a city and everyone's dressing the same but it's the one time you went to the town center and you see everyone wearing like purple dresses so you assume oh I have to wear a purple dress you don't know because you haven't been there for a long time. That actually, no, you don't have to wear a purple dress. You could wear red trousers. So I talk about how it's the host's responsibility to almost think about what you're seeing and to highlight those cases where, hey, it may look like, so what's acceptable and what's not acceptable or actually, do you see what I mean? Because other people have all gotten into habits. That's really cool. I really appreciate it when hosts, when I'm visiting somewhere, a host tells me, this is where the tourists go. Or this is, you know, when people are here for just a day, this is what they do. But what we like to do for fun on a day-to-day, you know, people who yeah. actually live here, you know, we could do all these other things. It's like we don't all just go to the Statue of Liberty every single day, right? Like we could do, yeah, you know, this is everything that's available to you in this city. Yeah, it's similar to that, that kind of thing. And I guess taking someone somewhere. So I talk about three different ways that you could, if someone says, I want to get somewhere, you could either just take them there and go back. You could give them a map and say, here you go, go. Or you could do something in between where you go with them, but you go point out things on the way. And I say similar to when you're coding, if you're pairing someone, you could just do it without, and so then they don't really learn. Or you could just let them do it by themselves. And that's like the other thing where it's like, do they need the balance? Or you can pair with them, but suggest different things along the way and explain why. And that's, I always talk about how that, well, I don't talk about because it's not it didn't make it into my talk, but I talk about how that's probably a better. Oh, I do I do actually talk about that in my talk. One thing I wanted to ask you about are what are some specific things that hosts can do to make their code bases more uh, welcoming. So we talked a little bit about readmes. What you know? What are the things you can add to a readme, or how you how can you structure a readme? So like when I think about making a guest in a city more hospitable, you know, I think about maps and travel guides and and things like that. And, you know, what are the things in a code base that are equivalent or offer the same sort of value? So I actually made a little example code hospitable readme. I think it's a gist. I don't know if I can find the link and you can add it to the show notes. But in in my talk I have a little video clicking through and scrolling through this code hospitable readme but the sections are so I do start with installation usage contributing so the kind of normal things that you see in a code base because that is useful you need to it's like opening here are the keys to get into the front door and then I have four more sections so one is history so it's the story where did this idea come from how did we get there why are we where we are now And then I talk about approaches. So what are the philosophies or the patterns within this code base? So is there a certain pattern you use to write your tests or is there a certain overall approach? And I give a specific example of the philosophy because 
in the active record with me, there is a philosophy section and it talks about how, hey, active record is actually an implementation of object relational mapping. And here's a link to a blog post by Martin Fowler. And here are some of the general principles. So it's like we have this thing called convention over configuration or something else called admit the database. So that's just a high level hey, this is how we generally approach things in this code base. And I thought that was really useful. Then I have a reading material section, which is, it might be external things like the active record readme that linked to the Martin Fowler blog post, or it might be internal things that you or someone else in your team has written about anything that's relevant to the code base. And then I have this section called walkthrough. And so this is meant to be the equivalent of a guided walking tour. And I thought it was the case of, walking through a particular feature so I thought you could start with here was the feature here's the first and maybe it's a commit by commit sort of here's the first test that we wrote here's how we then implemented it and just a short thing just so that someone could say ah now when I go to the backlog and I see this feature or I look in the issue tracker and I see this issue I can see how someone who's you know lived here for a while did it and I can that can get me started about how I should approach it and I think that's particularly important even with open source when you, you maybe you're contributing a feature to a an open source code base for the first time and you know you want your work to be accepted and merged in and it's a good way to understand well here's how people typically do it and and this is not to say uh, we've got to be careful that we don't end up saying this is how we do it here and you do it like this or goodbye but it's more like a it, it should be in the frame of mind of if you're stuck or if you're not sure here's how we've done it but I would hope that open source maintainers and also even within you know your day-to-day job people are always open to new approaches so it's very important that you keep that side of things as well and it's not just a didn't you read the guide we don't do things like that here <laughs> at least not without a good explanation of why not so yeah that's I I've made all of this up by the way so and at great. the end of the talk I do talk about at the end of the talk I do say look this is just something I've made up the, the main thing is the frame of mind of the guest host but you should take that and apply that to however you do things and just use it to make things better as opposed to this is how you do code hospitality. Yeah, I feel like the reason that you've been so successful with this and, and been able to, you know, build up such you know, so much material around how to think about code hospitality is because it's such a good metaphor. I really think it is. You love it. I think I you do. <laughs> I, do. I like it. I really love it too. Everything. Okay. I love Thanks, everything <laughs> that gets me to think about my, my relationships with other people in a different way and to sort of re-examine how I interact with people based on mm-hmm. power dynamics or things like that. So, you know, host guest is a form of power dynamic in a way. I'm always on the market for cool metaphors and analogies in that space. And I think this is one of them. So I'm really happy. Yay. Thank you. I'm glad you all like it. <laughs> Because actually, that's one of the scary things when I was, so I got really excited by the idea initially when I first thought about it with Theo, and then I sketched out so many ideas, and then I wrote a proposal. And then there was this, when it got accepted, and I was putting together the talk, it felt really silly to me. Like, it felt really flimsy, and I thought, everyone's going to say, what is this silly analogy, and it doesn't really map well, and or this is just really obvious why you even mentioning this and I was really worried about it so it was actually really after the first talk I did that the reception was great and then I did a few more and each time people really could relate to it so that was really good but every time someone else says oh I love this analogy it makes sense it always makes me really happy because I, I remember when I went through that whole 
fear period of, ah, this is really silly. No one's going to get it or everyone's going to think this is really obvious or just not worth exploring. I mean, it's a super rich analogy, you know, like it really just invites you to think about so many things inside of like a really sort of contained, you know, story. Yeah. I think this is about the time in our show when we all take a couple of minutes to reflect on something that we talked about that really uh, resonated with us. And I can go first. For me, I really liked the way that we talked about learning over the course of the show. Um, I started thinking about it right at the beginning, actually, when Nadia told a story about someone who had learned kind of maybe a little bit of a harsh lesson a little too late with the, the junior developer that left and how he kind of reassessed how he had handled that situation. Because I had someone come to me after a talk I gave once and said, hey, you know, I found your talk really challenging to listen to. And I was like, oh, I don't know if that's a good thing to, to hear from someone. And they were like, no, I think that that's a really good sign that learning was occurring during it because it was challenging. And so I already was in this mindset thinking about um, that person that you mentioned and having a challenging learning experience. But it also was on my mind a lot as we talked about the guest host relationship. I really like this idea that when one person is training another person at work, in tech, or whatever they're doing, both of those people should be learning. And both of those people are getting something out of it. And to me, um, that really kind of breaks down the power dynamic in ways that are really helpful. Um, I have trouble sometimes going into like power dynamic relationships because I'm nervous, like either on either side, like either, you know, here's someone who has a power dynamic over me, I'm nervous about how I'm going to make an impression, like what they're going to think of me or, but also like if I'm going into a situation where it's like, I have a power dynamic over this person, like, well, do I deserve to be here? Like maybe imposter syndrome stuff. Am I going to actually be able to teach them anything? And this idea that regardless of which way, like it doesn't matter which way that dynamic is going, like either way, both people should be learning, I think is a really healthy way to look at it. And I think that's going to change the way I try to go into those situations and those dynamics. I guess I have two threads that I sort of wrote down. I was thinking about how like there's a sort of a reputation that New Yorkers are really rude. And I'm not from New York, but that was always something that sort of like troubled me a little bit when I would visit. Um, and then someone who had been living there for a little bit told me, oh, you know, what it really is, is that most New Yorkers, unless they're incredibly privileged, they're surrounded by people all the time. There's just so many people. They probably have roommates. Um, the streets are really crowded. Like every time they get in an elevator, there's a bunch of people they don't know. And what it is, this person said was, there's this kind of unspoken uh, rule that sort of uh, has developed, which is, you know, we're really going to just sort of keep to ourselves because uh, this, I think, is the important part. That's how we're all going to just sort of get through our day. We're going to survive by just sort of not being in everyone's business all the time. Uh, is that how it is, too? <laughs> okay. And when someone told me that, everything just sort of clicked for me. It's like, oh, this, there, this isn't some kind of act of aggression. This is just how we survive, Right. And the fact that that was made when that was made explicit um, really helped me feel a little bit more welcome in New York City whenever I visit now. 
The other thought I had is that like, which Nadia just said was, I can just hand someone like uh, a subway map and say like, you know, here you go. This is how you get to everywhere you need to go. And sort of like objectively speaking, I could get to where I need to go. But really the objective isn't to just get from point A to point B. It's, you know, as a visitor of a city, I would really love to know the story. I would really love to sort of feel like this is my home, even if I'm only visiting for a weekend. And so when someone is able to walk me through a code base and sort of tell me the story of what this code base is, tell me its history, um, I'm going to feel a lot more at home when I'm going to start working on it. And hopefully I can feel like uh, a resident of that code base eventually. Great. Your point about New York got me thinking about London, I think it's exactly the same. There's this unspoken rule of we're all busy, we're all, there's so much stuff going on. You just don't talk to people, particularly on the tube. It's like this unspoken rule of we just don't talk to one another. And it's not that Londoners are unfriendly, we just don't do it. And so, yeah, your your story about New York reminded me of that. Yeah, right on. So I was was thinking about, uh, Jacob, what, what you just talked about with New York. And then I was thinking about how uh, sometimes when you invite people over for, you know, board games or something, and then it starts getting a little bit late. And so you say you're tired to get them to leave, but you're not really tired. You're just, what it is, is you are tired. You're just not physically tired. You're emotionally, like it's an emotional labor to be a host or a guest. And I think it's important to acknowledge that and to be, you know, realistic about the amount of emotional labor you're willing to put into it. And if it's something you can do, great. And if it's not something you can do, it may be worse for you to try it and, you know, be grumpy or be, you know, feel bad afterwards. Yeah, definitely. I, I definitely relate to the, I'm tired now, I'm going to go to bed. And maybe you're not, maybe he's going to read a book for another few hours or watch something, but you are tired, just not in the way that you're communicating to other people. <laughs> I guess the main thing to take away and that I hope people take away from this is this idea of the mindset and also safe spaces. So when I say the mindset, I think it's so key. I think coming off of Jamie's reflections and thinking about how do we advance learning, it's so key that those more experienced in the industry or those who are experts or managing don't see themselves as a teacher, but rather I just happen to be more experienced. I've just been here longer, but it doesn't mean I'm a teacher in the sense that I'm going to quiz the other person or give them challenges to help them get better. It's more, we're going to do this together and I'm not right. I really like one of my favorite points in the talk is the whole assume you're both lost and you're trying to find each other than I'm in the right place. They need to get to me. Like, I think that's a really valuable takeaway. And then the other thing is that I think all of the code hospitality stuff And I've even gone on and done another talk now about nonviolent communication. The the thing at the nub of it is vulnerability and making safe spaces for people to be vulnerable. Because if you don't feel safe to be vulnerable, you therefore don't feel free to speak your mind and talk about your feelings. You therefore hold on to things, therefore their attentions, therefore your team can't be as productive, therefore likely to lead to messy difficult to work on code bases so the foundation is it's safe for me to be vulnerable it's safe for me to say I don't know it's safe for me to ask questions and I think with the the host it's really important that the host takes on a bit more responsibility to set the scene and to make it a safe space one by 
stating that this is a safe space. Ask me any questions. Don't be afraid to make mistakes. Don't be afraid to, to fail. But two, by leading by example. So uncover your own flaws. Talk about your own uncertainty, things that you don't know or... I always found it really valuable when I, you know, I, I went to a coding boot camp and then started working at Pivotal. So everyone was way better than me, of course. And it was always great when the person I was working with said, you know, I don't really know what's going on here or I don't, you know, just exposing their own vulnerabilities. I felt safe. I was like, oh, OK, me too. But but you've been doing this for, th- you know, five more years than me and you still don't know. OK, I feel great. So I think, yeah, the key takeaways for me are a call to all the like senior developers out there working with junior developers. The junior developer is not wrong. They're just in a different place and make it safe to be vulnerable and be vulnerable yourself. No, I love that. I actually, uh, we do company demos weekly. And last week, one of my demos was a commit that fixed a bug that I had just written where I wrote the wrong variable name. And the variable name that I wrote was actually the name of a method that was actually would have it caused an infinite recursive loop, but the two variable names were like off by three characters. And so my my commit message was, I literally can't believe I did this. <laughs> and I just demoed that commit for the company. And what I was trying to get at was like, look, it's okay if you make mistakes. You don't have to like, you know, feel awful about it. Everyone's going to make mistakes, you know. That's great. It's reminding me of the, you know, the whole every time there's a failure, stand up and clap or cheer about mm-hmm. it. I don't know where that came from, but th- that sort of thing. Yeah. Like make failing fun and funny, but also a learning experience. That reminds me of Karl Popper's approach to change, which is basically that you don't have to make the right decision all the time. You just have to be able to recover from bad decisions. Yeah, I love that. So that's, you know, like that's how evolution works. Most of the decisions that evolution makes are terrible, but a few of them are good. Well, Nadia, this has been awesome. I'm so glad you came on the show and thank you for talking to us. And also, Jacob, thank you for joining us as our special guest panelist. This has been great. Thanks, everyone. 